That is the sound of the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra, founded, conducted, and curated by my guest today, Rick Benjamin. This is Carl Lockhart, co-host and co-producer of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. And I want to share with you a conversation I had with Rick about accompanying silent film with an orchestra using authentic mood cues from the period. When I sat down to work on this episode, I discovered that on my side of the conversation, there was a horrible reverberant echo that just can't be removed. So I'm going to try and work around that and edit out my questions, paraphrase my questions where needed to explain Rick's answers and keep our focus on what Rick has to say, which is really fascinating, and I hope you will enjoy this. From time to time, I may have to use some of those echoey questions, and I hope you'll understand and enjoy the episode anyway. Thanks. Here I am with Rick. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I should also uh, add that I'm a great fan of Ben and his work. So it's great. Uh, I'm uh, flattered to be mentioned in the same uh, breath with him. <laughs> I asked Rick about his beginnings in music. Well, I'm uh, from a family of classical musicians, and um, my grandfather was a professional uh, violinist, string player. Uh, my mother was a professional uh, organist and choir master, so the, the background was there. Uh, and every every member of the family, every every child that is, uh, had to study the piano. That was just a requirement. Um, seriously, sounds like a, a joke line, but no, we had to study, and um, and and I did. I became a classical pianist and a fairly serious classical musician. And um, along the way, I started playing brass instruments too in in uh, middle school. And got very good in the tuba. And actually, by the time I was a teenager, was playing professionally in New York. Uh, and studying in New York and uh, doing things I probably shouldn't have been doing, studio <laughs> session work and stuff like that, Well, still maintaining my piano skills. Uh, so that's really my background. I come to this from a sort of a hybrid uh, world of classical music and also uh, production music too, you know, uh, folks who were, who were playing shows, musicals, and, uh, and things like that. So... Uh, but basically, uh, you know, a, what you would have called a, a, a serious musical background. But I re actually got interested in early American music as a, a fairly young kid, maybe 10 or 11 years old, because I found my grandmother's Victrola out in her garage. Uh, and she had, you know, taken it out there in the 40s, I guess, and, and a stack of records. And... Uh, I remember being enchanted one uh, Sunday afternoon. It was a very traditional upbringing. You had, you had Sunday dinner, you know, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I finished early and scampered out and found this phonograph in the garage. And I remember putting this record on, this tenor singing a sort of ridiculous comic song. It turned out to be Billy Murray singing uh, something, I forget. I'm the guy that puts the salt in the ocean. I'm the guy that puts the bones in fish. I'm the guy, can't tell a lie, I'll always live, I'll never die in the wishbone. I'm the guy that puts the wish. I'm the guy that puts the smoke in the chimneys. I'm the guy that puts the leaves on trees. What's that? Who am I? Don't you know? I'm the guy, I'm the guy that bites the holes in quite the cheese. But uh, it opened up a whole world of sound to me. On the other side of this uh, dusty uh, grill was this whole world of sound 
that I had not encountered before. And that's really what got me involved with, uh, with historic music, American music, and, uh, mm-hmm. and things sort of uh, unspooled from there. I asked Rick about the origins of the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra. Paragon is a there's a wild story uh, getting getting all this going. <clears throat> I uh, was working, as I said, professionally in New York as a musician, as a, a really young fellow, uh, and finally decided I would need to get a degree in something musical. So I decided uh, to go to Juilliard, and uh, they actually gave me a, a scholarship to play the tuba at Juilliard. Uh, that was exciting, and. Um, so I was working on a, a, you know, bachelor's degree there, and in my second year, I was in a, a really bad accident, and I uh, damaged my jaw. I actually broke my jaw in an accident, and um, I wasn't able to play or, or participate in really any way. And as you know, that's a performance school. There isn't really a, a lot of theoretical stuff going on there. You you play. <laughs> it's the Shark Tank. Uh, so. <laughs> And I wasn't playing, so I decided during my convalescence to just invent something to do to occupy my time. And um, I decided to do, just write a paper on the beginnings of uh, my favorite early phonograph label, the Victor Talking Machine Company. And at this time, we're talking middle 1980s, there were still a couple of incredibly ancient people uh, from that era that you could talk to about this. And um, in the process, I found uh, well, first, I was interested in Arthur Pryor because I'm from Asbury Park, New Jersey, which, of course, was the, the huge stomping ground of the Pryor Band and the, and the Pryor Orchestra, too, which were both recording groups, collected their records as a kid. So there were still people around in that area. My grandfather had played uh, alto saxophone off and on with the prior band in the 30s. And, um, there were, and I discovered that there was an elderly man in that area who had been Arthur Pryor's assistant. And I should fill in again by saying that Pryor was one of the main studio conductors for the Victor Talking Machine Company. Uh, in any case, to make it quite a long story short, I've, I've found through this old gentleman that Mr. Pryor's own collection of music and scores from these sessions still existed, uh, and it was actually being discarded uh, at about that same time. The folks who had access or owned this uh, old building were uh, literally throwing the stuff out, shoot uh, into dumpsters to get rid of it. So I managed to swoop in, save about 4,000 uh, compositions. These are things uh, mainly for small orchestra. Uh, that Pryor had accumulated, mainly th- through his Victor work. Um, anyway, brought these things back to New York and decided, while convalescing, that I would uh, put together a small ensemble and just read this material and see what it was about. And uh, that's how Paragon got started, and it was a, sort of a, a maverick, you know, basement operation. Uh, we had some professors supporting us, uh, and finding this interesting, one of them was uh, Vincent Persichetti, who of course ah. ran, ran the composition department, and he was a supporter. Um, and uh, some of the faculty members were very supportive. However, I asked the, the um, uh, administration if we could do a concert, and I was told no. Uh, and I did it anyway. I signed out the <laughs> recital hall and did it. And um, 
got into trouble, of course. Uh, but Mr. Persichetti came to this thing and he shook my hand and he said, you know, we have enough people doing Brahms and Mozart. We need someone doing American music at the high level and you should be that guy. Why don't you think about that? So it was an amazing moment. And then the second amazing thing was I got home to my little hole in the wall apartment and there was a a message on the answering machine, a, a very elegant uh, European voice on the machine, and uh, it said, hello, this is Thomas Frost, and uh, I heard about the concert, and wow, you know, controversy, And but, uh, but this discovery is very interesting. Was the concert recorded? I'd like to hear it. And, well, I didn't know who this guy was, but then and now, I get phone calls and letters and stuff. I pretty much always respond to things. Um, I've made a copy of the Walkman cassette tape that had been made of this concert and mailed it to this address in Manhattan and thought nothing more of it. Uh, and maybe six months later, the phone rang again, and here's the voice I picked up. And they said, hello, this is Thomas Frost, listening to the, um, the recording today, and um, we'd, well, we'd like to begin production immediately. We, we really think there's a great potential. Well, I, and I said, well, sir, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure what this is about. What, you know, who, who are you? What is this? And well, Thomas Frost was and still is one of the most famous record producers of all time. <laughs> you know, Vladimir Horowitz, uh, all the Philadelphia Orchestra albums, the early Glenn Gould albums. You know, he was running CBS Masterworks and later went on to Sony Classical as their, you know, uh, general manager. Uh, so anyway, I, basically within a matter of weeks, we had gone from having our first concert to having this famous person producing our recordings. Um, and uh, the recordings sold well, and uh, within another couple of years, we did a New York concert, and we actually had uh, agents, you know, managers vying for uh, for management dibs on Paragon, uh, and we started touring in 1988, and uh, it became pretty pretty quickly a full time thing for me and a, and a small core of players. Um, and that continued on into the early 2000s when a couple of things happened. Uh, my wife and I had a, a, a new child who had a lot of major medical problems. Um, and that, that happened in 2003, and uh, it's still an ongoing situation, actually. But that curtailed some of our activities. Uh, and then, of course, the Great Recession uh, was also problematic. That affected touring. We won't even get into the recent thing. I always felt like, um, you know, the uh, the roadrunner in one of those cartoons just kind of going between those two canyons. There's no, there's no bridge there, no rope, but we're still going. Uh, because there was no, no plan. I've never been one of these people that has, you know, the five-year plan or the, right, there's right. been no business structure at all. Um, it's me just sitting here researching, collecting scores, crawling through attics, and then the phone rings once in a while, and okay, well, we're going to uh, Nebraska uh, next year for two weeks. All right, that sounds great. Let's do it. I asked Rick about the eclectic Paragon catalog and recordings he made of Broadway music of the turn of the century and of black classical music, the Black Manhattan series. Right, uh, and, and that was specifically why I did those things, and, mm -hmm. and thank, very thankful to New World Records for having the wisdom to do that, too. Um, Back in, I, I had read about 1999 or so, um, James Weldon Johnson's book, Black Manhattan, which is a history of art and music and culture by African Americans in New York, up to 1930. It goes from the colonial era to 1930. 
And I read the book and I, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I want to hear all this music. And so, okay, how hard could this be? Well, it turned out to be impossible. Uh, either th these things just didn't exist on recordings or they were on a uh, cylinder or 78 RPM that were not accessible or, you know, no known copies kind of situations. And then I started realizing that within my own collections, which by that time were probably 10 or 12,000 orchestral pieces, I actually had a lot of the music anyway. I just needed to go over to the filing cabinet and pull it out, which was uh, kind of a startling, you know, coconut to the head <laughs> moment. It's like, well, wait a minute, this isn't a problem. I have it right here. And so I proposed to New World Records. I actually went in for a meeting about 2000 um, to do a volume called Black Manhattan and get some of these key uh, repertoire items from the book recorded. I had a nice meeting and I never heard anything about it again. In 2002, I got a phone call sitting in my same seat I'm in right now uh, from the new director of A&R at New World. Then he said, I'm cleaning out the, uh, my predecessor's desk here and I found this proposal. Did anyone produce this? Because this is a great idea. And I said, nope. Nobody has done it. Uh, and that was the start of what has become a three volume, three and a half hour uh, set of recordings with uh, more than 30 composers and 60 compositions. I feel that's a major work. I asked Rick how he got started accompanying silent film. We started going almost back to the beginnings of Paragon back in the 1980s where we would get a call from a film society and they would say, you know, we're going to be screening such and such um, and we have a, we've rented a score from, you know, Library of Congress or MoMA or someplace, some more obscure archive. Uh, and we noticed that the instrumentation is similar to what you use. Would you consider coming out here and doing it? Uh, and sure enough, the, the, the early days of the cinema, uh, sort of 1914 on to the end of the silent era, uh, that basic instrumentation for a, a cinema orchestra is exactly what was used for uh, early Broadway, for you know, early ballroom music. Um, so we were essentially already that orchestra. We were, we were already the kind of thing that people needed. So we were working for outside organizations who were presenting. Um, and then something else cool happened in 1992 um, again, sitting in the office here, the phone rang and I picked up and it was the, the director of the music division of the Washington, D.C. Public Library, a very nice fellow, and he said, you know, we've got some of your Paragon recordings here and we know you're, you're into uh, preserving old scores, American theater music, um, and you might, so you might be interested to know that we're moving into a new building and uh, we were down in the basement over the last few days and we found um, 26 packing crates full of silent film music and cue sheets that have been sitting down there since 1942. No one has ever opened them. And we don't, uh, you know, we don't really want to move all this stuff and we have no use for it. Uh, would you consider a donation? And of course they said, absolutely. Sounds, sounds fascinating. So the caveat was, and there were several institutions and organizations that actually wanted this stuff. Uh, Eastman wanted it, the Library of Congress was kind of in there, in the mix somewhere. Um, but the key was that the public library wanted to guarantee that this material would be used for public performance. And we were able to agree to that. So we managed to win the material. Uh, I went down in the largest size U-Haul truck available uh, and spent a day and a half moving all this material and then getting it back to our uh, 
to our collections here. And it took about five years to actually catalog it because it's truly massive. Um, it belonged to the old Capitol Theater in, uh, in Washington, D.C., which was a movie palace. But it had, had prior lives. It had actually belonged, been accumulated by a music director named Bailey Allert, who was a, a very fine early cinema conductor and uh, cue sheet writer. Uh, and it's literally thousands and thousands of cues and then a box of almost 900 cue sheets for 900 films going back to 1912 uh, and ending in the late 20s. So it was a remarkable thing. And with that, of course, to maintain the, uh, you know, our, our pledge there, I started designing film programs to utilize this material and doing programming in a in a very authentic way, um, using the actual cue sheets and using these uh, cues, you know, the stock uh, cue music, and putting these things back together. And so, so that's what so we've, we've been doing. Rick explained that in this context, a cue is not a piece of music written for a specific film, but a generic mood or situation. And that goes all the way back to about 1913, actually, in the, and it was called photoplay music. Uh, and there would be, uh, you know, I hate to use the word stock because it's kind of demeaning, uh, and much of this stuff is brilliant and ingenious. Um, but the, but stock, you know, any human situation, uh, obviously love scenes and chases, comic scenes of submarine attack, volcanic eruption, uh, you know, landslide, <laughs> anything, you, anything you can think of, rain, storm, uh, storm at sea. You know, there, there are really dozens of categories. There's, I think, 17 or 18 main categories, uh, but, uh, but hundreds of subcategories. But anyway, any, any situation you can think of is covered in, in, these, in these pieces. And uh, contrary to what people had speculated about, you know, when, when I was growing up and sort of interested in this as a, you know, a music student, and I'd have teachers say, oh, forget about that stuff, it's just crap. Um, actually digging into literally thousands of these pieces of music, I've discovered that actually there's some brilliant, beautiful, extremely moving things here. <laughs> well, and the best of them, too, were written. There was a whole cadre of composers, some of them European uh, expatriates, who were really under the, the sincere belief that, that cinema was going to be another forum for serious classical composition. You know, just like for a couple hundred years, you'd have, he'd have the symphony, and you'd have the, the, the opera in the lyric stage. Uh, you had chamber music. Okay, now here comes an entire new world for classical composition. It's going to be for film. Uh, and they took this very, very seriously, even in their cue music. Um, some really brilliant things. As an example of the qualities of this cue music, here are two excerpts from the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra album, The Pioneers of Movie Music. The first is simply called Storm Music, and the other is Love Theme.
All of the music selections in this bonus episode are from the album The Pioneers of Movie Music, Sounds of the American Silent Cinema, which is available along with other Paragon Ragtime Orchestra albums from ParagonRagtime.com. I asked Rick about the role of the silent film theater orchestra in the cultural life of the average American. They would not have an opportunity, you know, obviously there was no real mass media, live performance was mass media, Um, and really no opportunity to hear string playing, you know, it wasn't the the case as it is now and since the 50s where every region of the country has a symphony orchestra of some sort that's playing standard rep um, and you can go hear them. There's nothing like that really happening at all unless you went to the cinema and then you could see a viola and a cello and... uh, you know, actually hear orchestral music. And uh, that was an amazing thing. I spoke with Rick about working with larger ensembles, such as the group drawn from the Maryland Symphony Orchestra at the concert I attended. The MSO was fielding 30 players altogether. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so you're close. Um, and yeah, that, that would have been a fairly deluxe group in, in a fairly deluxe cinema. Um, but as we know, looking through uh, the historical record, there were much larger groups in the larger cities. Uh, you know, the the uh, <clears throat> the old Rialto in New York, starting in 1914-15, had a had a 45-piece orchestra playing every day. Uh, and eventually, you know, the the final Roxy Theater had the largest orchestra in the world, 110 pieces mm-hmm. playing three times a day. So in, in Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago. Los Angeles, to some extent, you you would not be uh, surprised to see 60 or 70 or 75 players uh, in the cinema. And uh, so what we had there at the Maryland Theater was kind of probably would have been a deluxe uh, size for a city of that size, too. The Paragon Band is more like uh, uh, what you would have, sort of the basic group that you would have found in in a smaller city or large town cinema. Uh, but yeah, what you saw with the double reeds and the doubled strings and the French horns and everything, that's absolutely authentic. We talked about the authenticity of live sound effects for silent film, especially silent comedy. Well, it, I'll tell you, it's, it's fun, and, um, and there's a lot of sort of historical evidence. Uh, the Rick Altman book is really great on this, too, if you've ever seen that, called Silent Film Sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also collect uh, trade magazines and trade journals from from that time period there were specific ones that actually covered film presentation you know metronome magazine jacobs monthly um they they actually had columns on accompanying films with orchestra and sound effects so you can actually read these things and and i do i collect them um in modern practice it's tricky if you're doing comedy the sound effects are expected and they're improvisational um you know when when someone takes a fall there's a, a sound is expected um, and, but it's improvisational. For dramatic pictures, the the percussion parts are always written out, and they're they're musically oriented. In other words, you know, the timpani or the drum is actually playing with the orchestra, playing the musical score, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there really aren't sound effects. So it's it's really in the realm of comedy that you get into the effects thing. Um, and uh, and there's a wide you're right. There's a wide area of uh, uh, of taste really as to what that should encompass. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, it was enormously fun. The particular show that you saw, I thought, was way over, uh, <laughs> way over sound effects. I had three players back there, 
uh, who were just having a ball, uh, and they were they were having so much fun that even though I I went back a couple times during rehearsal and said you know it's just a little too much and you should focus on really the big moments you know when the building collapses we need a sound for that uh, but they were having so much fun just doing anything uh, and it was impossible to rein them in that we got what we got. <laughs> we're at my group you know I would have been yelling uh, and well none, none of my percussionists would would do it to that extent you know they would hit the high points and then let this let the screen tell the rest of the story um so you d you did see a, an over punctuated <laughs> performance uh however the audience i think liked it and certainly the percussion section probably <laughs> never come off that cloud ever ask rick about the transition of working with symphony organizations well it's always i i never solicit work i've never done that it, it always comes in the form of a phone call or these days an email or somebody says um, I saw Paragon, and um, you know I'm an executive of such and such an orchestra. Uh, do you think you could do this here? And you know then we discuss it. Uh, and so as it happens, you know all of these all of this cue music is basically created in in uh, with flexible instrumentation. You can use a smaller group or a larger group, um, and you really can do this with a symphony orchestra. You know, there, as I said, there are French horn parts, there are double reed parts. Some of the things have harp parts. Um, so you can actually do it with a larger group. Uh, but that's, that's how it happens. Usually it's someone who has seen me do a Paragon thing and they think, wow, we, you know, we get this guy to come and do it with us. And, uh, and that can be fun. Uh, and sometimes it's a case where, for example, the, the show that you saw in Maryland, uh, an, an executive of another orchestra will actually see that and say, there wouldn't even be a Paragon connection. He'll just see me do that show and go, wow, we want to get that here. And I'll get the call. I noted that one of the concerts with the Maryland Symphony had been live streamed. That's part of the great unpleasantness remediation uh, <laughs> thing. Uh, but it's also smart, too, because it is, a, you know, it's an art form that's, uh, that is becoming more and more obscure. Despite Ben's work and my work and, and a handful of other serious practitioners, um, I just got off the phone before your uh, call with a, with a newspaper interviewer about another show I'm doing next week. Um, and this is a, not a particularly young reporter, but she had literally no idea what I was talking about. Um, you know, films, live music, the silent era. I mean, none of these terms actually worked. It was it was disconcerting. <laughs> Buster Keaton was a complete mystery. You know, didn't, never heard of this. So that all goes to say that keeping this art form alive, and it is, live music with cinema is an art form, um, requires uh, all hands on deck getting the word out there that this is a, a viable, exciting uh, thing to experience. Silent cinema really is best experienced in a theater with live music and with the audience because as I've pointed out, I think at the show you were at, the, um, the audience really does become part of the alchemy of that. The reaction of the people um, becomes part of th this whole magic. Uh, you know, the laughter and the sounds that the folks make with their surprise and delight um, is contagious. And so this mixture of the historic space, the live music, uh, the funny movies, and then this audience enjoying it as a communal experience, which, by gosh, society gives us very few com communal experiences anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. This is where the magic is. So, you know, folks come out and see these things when they're happening. They're, it's, they're rare as hen's teeth anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, we we're out of time, and there was nothing left to do but thank Rick Benjamin for his service to American music in general and to silent film music in particular. So let's go out with a track by the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra from their album, The Pioneers of Movie Music. It's called 
the funny guy. This has been episode 48 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. I'm Kerr Lockhart, co-host and co-producer. Thanks for listening to this special bonus interview with Rick Benjamin of the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast in Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with a regular episode with Ben. Until then, enjoy some good music at a silent movie soon.